Hey, well, please uh, turn in your Bible to Ezra chapter, chapter 3. We're in a series on Ezra. Ezra seems like a funny book to go through. It's one of those obscure Old Testament books that you don't quite know where it is. It seems like it should be at the end of the Old Testament, but it's before Job and Nehemiah and Esther. And so we're looking at, uh, at the exiles who returned from their captivity. And this morning, I'm going to talk about basic steps to spiritual renewal. Well, you know, every, uh, every spring, what do people want to do? They want to watch the Masters. And if you watch the Masters this past spring, you got to see an amazing victory. Tiger Woods winning his uh, fourth or fifth green jacket. Pretty, uh, pretty amazing. And nobody thought it could be done. Everybody thought Tiger was finished. Here, here he is in 1997 winning his first green jacket. And people thought he could do no wrong. In fact, for, for many years, he was, uh, he was just the dominant figure in the sport. In, in uh, 2000, um, he broke, uh, uh, in the U.S. Open, he broke uh, a nine, nine tournament records in the, in the Open. And uh, Sports Illustrated said after his victory, he said, this is the greatest spectacle in all of sports. That was a huge thing to say. The guy was dominant. And then in 2009, everything broke down because he had all sorts of problems with his marriage, with some addictive behaviors that were out of control. And even five years ago, if you would Google, is Tiger finished? The answer would be, by all the pundits, yes, he is, he is finished. Here, here's an example. It might be time to face reality. Tiger may never be Tiger again. Everybody thought he was he was done, and then, he, and then he came back, and he was asked, what are you going to do? He, this was asked on Saturday night before the Sunday tournament. What are you going to do before Sunday? What is your pre-game routine going to be? And he said, I'm, I'm going back to the basics. I'm going to get up at 3.45 in the morning. I'm going to do some stretching. I'm going to do some swinging. I'm going to eat a good breakfast, and I'm going to get out there and play. He's going back to the basics. Back to the basics. And I will tell you that Tiger's comeback mirrors something that all of us need to do if we're going to make a spiritual comeback in our lives. So what do I mean, what do I mean about spiritual comeback? All of us know people who profess faith in Christ, and then they slide away. The old term for that was called backsliding. I don't hear that term as much anymore, but it's a reality. People come to Christ, they grow in their faith, and they get lackadaisical. They get lazy. They get apathetic, and they slide away from first love. They slide away from a daily commitment to Christ. And then they, they, they hit like a bottom, and they, and they say, I, I got to get back to faithfulness to Jesus Christ. How do I go about doing that? And, and what, what we need to do is we need to do what the exiles did when they returned from Babylon into the land. They gotta go, we got to go back to the basics. What Tiger did athletically, we've got to do spiritually. We've got to go back to the basics. And the exiles coming back to the land, they model what the basics are. And so uh, Ezra presents... Uh, three steps that were involved in going back to the basics. Here's step one. 
When you're coming back after a season in the wilderness, the first thing you have to do is place a very high value on your position in God. That's what the returning exiles do. And we see that in chapter 3, verse 1. When the seven month came and the children of Israel were in their towns. Now, what that meant that they were in their towns is that they were dispersed within Israel. I'll tell you about that in a second. Well, they gathered as one man in Jerusalem. Now, what I want to argue is that that is a statement about their identity. And here's the reason why. A little bit of background. Remember, the Israelites were in captivity for 70 years, roughly 605 B.C. to 535 B.C. And God told them, you guys are going to be here for a while. I want you to settle in. And in Jeremiah, he said, I want you to uh, plant gardens, grow families, build houses. I want you to become involved in the city of Babylon because in its welfare, you will have welfare. I want you to be involved in the civic environment within Babylon. I want you involved in the city without being conformed to its values. Now, to help in this process, God gave them some world-class leaders. We're talking Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Great, fantastic leaders who modeled how they were to be in the city of Babylon. But then people start asking, so, like, are we ever going to go back to our ancestral homeland? Is that ever going to happen? Didn't seem possible. But God said, look, after 70 years, you are going back. Impossible, humanly speaking. Impossible. And then the impossible happens. Because Cyrus the Great conquers Babylon by diverting the the, the river and going underneath the walls of the river, and he defeats Babylon without shedding one drop of blood. And Cyrus says, look, I'm going to send, now he wasn't a southerner, but I'm going to send all y'all, I'm going to send all y'all back to Jerusalem. And he, he, he gave a decree, and the de- decree said, you know, go, if you want to go, go. So guess how many people signed up? 50,000 people signed up. And Cyrus uh, appointed two great leaders, a guy named Sheshbazer and Sheshbazer's nephew, Zerubbabel. And Cyrus called for donations, and donations poured in, and 50,000 people cart about $12 million equivalent across the Fertile Crescent into the land. As they approach Jerusalem, they can barely contain themselves. They're so excited. They've read the Bible. They know what Jerusalem is like. They, they envision how beautiful it is. They envision God's love for Jerusalem. And they crest the hill and look down on the city, and they go, what in the world? Like the walls are torn down. Like the Temple Mount is a pile of rubble. Oh, my gosh. And they're thinking, wait a second. In Babylon, we were artisans. We were merchants. We were like like successful business people, and now we're going to have to become construction workers, and we're going to have to become farmers. This is going to be really hard. Nevertheless, they got out some old maps, they got out the scriptures, and they figured out what cities they were supposed to dwell in. They went to those cities, and they settled in. And after seven months, they go back to Jerusalem as one man. 
Now, now, what does that mean? What it means is they are now so identified with the program of God that they come based upon that identification to Jerusalem in order to worship God. Identity. Now, look, if you're coming back to God after a season of being away for a while, and look, it happens. It happens. People, for whatever reason, may go through a time where they're away from God for a week, for a month, for a year, for a decade, and they come back. And when you come back, the very first thing you need to do is reckon your identity in God. And let me give you a, category, a, a catalog of, of these things. Your new position in Christ. Number one, you are immersed in the Trinity. You know, Jesus talked about this in the Great Commission. He, he said, I, I want you to baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He's not just talking about water baptism. What he's talking about is the reality that when you come to Christ, you are immersed in the triune God. Water baptism is an illustration of that, but the spiritual reality is you're immersed in the love of the triune God. Amen. That's incredible. So when you, when you live and move and exist in, in the world, you're not alone. You are, you are immersed in Father above who loves you, the Son beside you who walks with you, the Spirit inside you who fills you. That's part of your identity. You also are endowed with purpose. Jesus said in John 20, 20, he said, he said as the Father sent me, so I send you. John 20, 21, as the Father sent me, so I send you. So like Jesus came to earth with a mission. God gave you the new birth for a mission. And for the rest of your life, you have the power to do something that will, that will make an eternal difference in the lives of other people. I mean, how cool is that? I mean, you can go throughout your life and do, 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 do nothing of any eternal value, or you can come to Christ, have an eternal purpose, and through your ministry to your family, to your neighbors, to your friends, to your coworkers, to the city, you can do something that God says has eternal value to it. Amen. You have an eternal purpose. Your position in Christ is also that you're elevated into a family. You know, how, how cool would it be if you, if you, you know, walk down the road and, and say, who are you? Well, I'm, I'm actually, um, I'm Le LeBron James' brother. And I, I, he invites me to all of his basketball games. You know, I'm, I'm, I, yeah, I'm Tiger Woods' son. Yep, my dad and I play golf together. You, you think that's pretty cool, right? Yeah. Well, well, you know, you can walk down the street and say, yeah, um, like I'm a joint heir with Jesus. Um, he is my elder brother. Um, I'm a joint heir with him. I'm his partner, according to Hebrews. God the Father loves me with the same love with which he loves his son. That's part of your, that's part of your position in Christ. You, you never have to ask the question, does God really love me? Because your position in Christ is that the Father loves you with the same love with which he loves his son. That's amazing. And then, and then your position also is that you're justified and forgiven. Those are two different words. To be justified means that you are placed in a position legally where you've been declared not guilty and been declared righteous. Whereas forgiveness means that relationally, God never holds anything against you. 
You know how sometimes we can do that? You know, friends can, marriage partners can, like they can hold things against somebody that they're in relationship with. God never, ever holds anything against you because you have been declared righteous and you have been forgiven of all, all of your sins. And then another thing is you're headed for heaven. And the cool thing about the book of Romans chapter 8 is that Paul says, those whom he justified, these he also not will glorify, but past tense, he's already glorified them. So your entry into heaven is so certain that Paul puts it in the past tense. Man, it's a done deal. It's already happened. Well, it hadn't happened in actual fact to you yet, but it will happen. Done deal. And so when you, when you start thinking about your position in, in Christ, it's important that you reckon these things to be true. Here you, you come back after a while and you're, you know, you're wondering, okay, does God still love me? Does, is, am I, I going to be okay? Is he going to be mad at me? Is, is he going to, is he going to like destroy me? Or Look, these things are true of you. And when you come back after a season in the wilderness, you have to reckon these things to be true and walk confidently in them. That's the first thing we got to do. Now, here's, here's a second thing that we do when we're coming back after a season of being away from God for a while. We need to build some practical spiritual disciplines into our lives. So we continue with, with, uh, with verse 2. Then arose Jeshua, the son of, the son of Jazadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer sacrifice, burn offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Now, first of all, just, just reading that, does this sound like a tense environment to you? Answer is yes. Like they're up there working on the Temple Mount. It's the most contested piece of real estate today. It was a contested piece of real estate back then. They're working up on the Temple Mount. They see people gathering, looking at them. We're mad at those people back there rebuilding that altar. So they're basically beginning to do some spiritual disciplines even in the context of opposition and fear. They're doing it in spite of the fact that it's, that it's, it's difficult. And they're doing them regularly morning and evening. Now, I, this pause just for a second and explain this. So when they're in Babylon... Babylon has these beautiful temples that are architecturally magnificent. We're talking like Notre Dame-type cathedrals, Chartres-like cathedrals, Westminster Abbey-type cathedrals, beautiful cathedrals. And they're going to come back to Jerusalem, and they're going to build an altar to the true God, and it's not going to be that beautiful. So they're going to do this by faith, that the God who does not dwell in temples is going to be pleased with them doing what he commanded them to do, no matter what it looks like. And it will become beautiful. What they're building will become, in Jesus' day, the most beautiful building in the entire world. The Temple of Herod, which is the renovation of this temple, becomes the most beautiful building in the entire world. But not now. Not now. So they're, they're beginning to do this by faith, and they start doing 
they start doing the daily sacrifices. Here's the, uh, the kind of altar that they would have done. It was a wooden box overlaid with bronze. And there were burnt offerings that were being done. There were five of them in Leviticus, a burnt offering, a grain offering, a peace offering, a sin offering, and a guilt offering. Five offerings that they could do, but they really fell into two categories. They basically are offerings to confess sin and offerings to express gratitude. So their daily discipline, morning and evening, were disciplines of confessing sin and expressing thanks. Pretty simple. You can go through the book of Leviticus and it gets pretty complicated, but that's, that's basically exactly what they were doing. So if you're going to begin to engage in disciplines, I mean, you'd build disciplines of daily presence into your life, the daily presence of God. Amen. That daily presence of God says, Father, uh, I'm, I'm just conscious of the fact that I told a little white lie back there. And I just, I just want to confess that to you, Lord. That, that was wrong. Lord, I, I want to confess the fact that I was, I was kind, of, kind of rude to, my, to, to the person who waited on me at the table. They got the order wrong, and I was pretty rude to them. I want to confess, Lord, that that was sin. Lord Jesus, you abide with me, and I'm, I'm kind of convicted right now that my relationship with my wife is not what it's supposed to be. I want to confess that sin. And so the daily disciplines of God's presence suggest that we're aware of times when we've done wrong. We simply confess that. Do, do we need to get a whip out and beat ourselves up about that? Like, bad, bad Christian, you did a bad thing. Why do we need to do that? Because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right there in the moment, he'll do that. And then with gratitude, what, what you do is, is you just say, God, thank you. Lord, thank you for the beauty of the, of the sunrise. Thank you for the beauty of the sunset. Thank you, Lord, that I live in a house that has screens and I don't have bugs inside my house. Or, Lord, thank you that I live in a house that, that has some heat. Lord, thank you that I live in a house. We, we engage in daily disciplines of gratitude because that's what it means to live inside the presence of God. That's discipline number one. Now, here's a second discipline they do. This comes from verse four. They kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written. It's also called the Feast of Tabernacles. And they offer the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. So here's what they did. They did the morning and evening offerings, but they also did the seasonal offerings. And the Feast of Tabernacles was kind of a cool thing. It, re it reminded people of camping in the wilderness for 40 years during the exile. So what they would do is they'd leave their homes for a week, and they would, they would erect tents, and they would, they would camp out. And it was a time for fellowship. They didn't do any work. It was time for fellowship and, and joy and the kids got together. I mean, how many of you have done family camping trips with friends? You know, the kids love it. it. Becomes the transformative thing. You know, when they grow up, they think, hey, remember when we used to go camping and it rained and our tent got flooded out? Remember how fun that was? Not at the time, but as you remember it, it was. So they, they did that at the Feast of, Feast of Tabernacles. Well, now the returned exiles have have been in their cities. Now they're re-celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles and they're doing it at great personal cost. 
because they had to leave their farms and their fields. They had to leave their flocks. And they're trusting God that their farms and their flocks will be safe while they go to Jerusalem and they do what God told them to do in this seasonal sacrifice. And that's what you and I have to do as a discipline is have times of seasonal presence. Daily presence is really important. Seasonal presence is also important. Sometimes it's important to break away for half a day and be alone with God. Sometimes it's important to break away for a day to be alone with God. I, I have to confess, it's very hard for me to do this. And sometimes Cindy will say to me, you should do this. You should do this. The place where I normally go is Osage Hill State Park. I take my Bible, take my journal, I take my camp chair, I set my feet up on, the, on, on a you know, rock or a log, and I'll read, and I'll journal, and I'll pray. Amen. And I need that. I need that. It's a discipline of seasonal presence. If you're coming back to God after a time away from God, you need the daily disciplines, you need the seasonal disciplines. Both of those things are very, very important so that this becomes part of your life. Now we see that there is another discipline that they do, um, not just the extended presence, but now in verse 6, from the first day of the seventh month, seventh month, they begin to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not laid. The, the altar was built, the altar was laid, but the foundation of the temple was not laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink to all the Sidonians. I just love to speculate about this because it seems as if they had the money to do this. Cyrus gave them money to do this. So they, they sent word to the Sidonians and people come with all of the construction materials. Now we got a construction site on the Temple Mount and the people of Israel are providing food for the Sidonians as they begin to do the work. One time I had, we had some guys who were working on our roof and it was easily 100 degrees out when we got a roof replaced and it was 120 up on the roof and uh, I went out and bought this big thing, a Gatorade for the guys who were working. I said, you guys need, need to drink this. They guzzled that stuff down. They were so appreciative. That's what these guys are doing. And so uh, the Tyrians uh, the brought cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, uh, to, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, the king of Persia. They got a construction site. Now, why is this important? They're not building Notre Dame Cathedral. They're building the temple. But why are they doing this? They're doing this because their passion is corporate worship. The passion of the people of Israel as they come back is corporate worship. They need what we would say, the body of Christ. They need to worship in the presence of others who are part of the body of Christ. You and I need the same thing. If you're coming back from a, being away from the Lord for a time, it is vital that you cultivate a taste for corporate worship. So um, that's the third discipline, corporate worship. But Psalm 34:8 is really important in this regard because that Psalm says, taste and see that the Lord is good. So here's the thing. You've been away from God for a while. You come back. You think, you know, I need, need to be involved in corporate worship, but I don't know if I have 
the taste for those songs. I mean, I've been listening to a lot of Led Zeppelin. I've been listening to whatever else you listen to. Um, I, listen, I've listened to a lot of Led, Ze Led Zeppelin. I, I appreciate rock music. Um, but, you know, I, I just don't know if I want to sing the worship songs. And what I would say to you is that you are responsible for your taste in music. You are responsible. To taste and see that the Lord is good means you cultivate your tastes. So let me tell, you, tell a story on myself. Three years ago, I, I switched to a plant-based diet. That means no meat, no fish, poultry, eggs, cheese, no added oil, things, things like that. And uh, so, so it was really hard at first. People, you know, roll their eyes at me like this will never last. It's been a game changer for me. But here's the funny thing is that about a year into it, you know, I'm still struggling with this a little bit. I order my plant-based meal. Cindy orders what she orders, which is, which is not a plant-based meal. And um, so I dig into it and I say, oh my gosh, this is amazing. This is amazing. And I'm carrying on as if, as if I was digging into a steak. And I, I think Cindy probably said something like, she, she probably said, seriously, I mean, you sound as if you're digging into a filet mignon. I'll tell you what happened. My taste changed. My taste changed. You are responsible for your tastes in worship. And what God commands you to do is to taste and see in a corporate worship setting that God is good. So what we've done at Grace is we've put our worship repertoire on Spotify. And you can get on Spotify and you can listen to our worship tunes on Spotify. And you can cultivate a taste for the kinds of things that we are, we are singing here at Grace. So the idea is this. The idea is this. After a season in the wilderness, you got to build foundational disciplines back into your life. Daily disciplines of God's presence, seasonal disciplines of God's presence, and committing to that all-important discipline of corporate worship. Now we move to the third. Uh, oh, well, let me say something about disciplines. Yeah. Here's the thing about disciplines. It's a little bit like practicing the piano. Nobody ever practices the piano so that they can be a good practicer. They don't do that. They practice piano so they can play. Amen. Nobody, likewise, swims laps so they can be a good lap swimmer. You don't do that. You swim laps in order that you might be able to win in a meet. And so the disciplines are like that. You practice disciplines so that when life shows up, your automatic response is to God. So uh, one of the things I started doing uh, before Easter was I started getting back into journaling. I'd done that for many, many years, left it for about, I don't know, maybe 15 years, and I was getting so busy that I thought, you know what, I, I need to have that time in the existential presence of God where I'm slowing down. And journaling did that for me. I changed my strategy a little bit. I bought the Lectoterm journal because somebody told me that was a good one. And... Uh, I have loved it because it's gotten me off my, got me off this thing, like my obsessive dependence upon this thing. 
And, and now, you know, in that journal, I can slow down a little bit, and I can, and I can, I can write. And it's been, it's been really, really helpful for me in my relationship with, with the Lord. So you start with the daily disciplines, you go with the seasonal disciplines, then you go, you go back into um, <clears throat> the corporate worship time. So that leads us to the third step. And the third step is this. When you come back to Jesus after a time in the wilderness, you got to walk by faith and not by sight. It's really easy to walk by sight, and it's important to walk by faith. So pretty soon the, sep- the second temple begins to take place. The rubble is all cleared away. The materials are gathered. The foundation is laid. And here's verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests with their vestments came forward with trumpets. Now stop there for a second. What are these vestments? Well, when... Israel was deported to Babylon in 605 B.C. They took the scrolls, which is God's word, and they took the high priest's clothes. And they had been like in mothballs for 70 years. Now they get them out of the mothballs and they, they put them on. Now, it is so funny to think about that from our standpoint because, you know, we, we might be going... Oh my gosh, you know, that, that's, that's so last century. Like, seriously, is that really in style anymore? Like, like isn't that what we used to wear? Like, but these, these vestments were the high priest's vestments that had all sorts of symbolism upon them, meaning the high priest was the believer priest, the representative before God. So they put these back on. That, that must have been a really cool thing because now this means that the high priest can bring them into the presence of God. Um, and so, verse 11, the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord, came. And according to the directions of King David, uh, they came and they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And they sang that with joy because they had gone through that. Like God's steadfast love brought us through the exile. God's steadfast love has brought us to this place where we can worship God on a daily basis. We're encountering the presence of God and the goodness of God on an ongoing, on an ongoing basis. And they were, they were super excited about that. So excited. Look what happens. And all the people shouted with a great shout, when they praised the Lord because of the foundation the house of Israel was laid. They shouted with a great shout. We'll, we'll pass over verse 12 for a second. The people shouted with a great shout, and the, sh- and the sound was heard far away. I love that idea, the sound heard far away. How many of you have been to a, to a, a football game, and you're late? You're late for the game. And you walk up to the stadium, and you hear the crack of a bat, and the roar of the crowd. You think, i, I got to get in there. Like, like what's, what's going on inside the stadium? Well, that's what people were hearing from far away. And who was hearing this? Well, remember, we heard earlier on in the chapter that people in the land were watching them. We're watching you guys. We are not happy at all with what's going on. We're watching you. They were the ones that were hearing this. And they're thinking, like, what's going on with these people? They're excited about... Yahweh, the God of Israel. Wait, were any of the other foreign gods, were, were people excited about God, their gods in that way? Like, were they excited about Baal and Dagon and, 
and Marduk that way? No way. No way. But these guys are genuinely excited about the presence of God. And so they were shouting. But not everybody. Not everybody because many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house. Wait, how old would they have been when they saw the first house? Let's say they were 10 years old. And they saw the Temple of Solomon, that great Temple of Solomon, that massive, beautiful, gold Temple of Solomon. They saw that. They were 10 years old. And they come back after being away for 70 years. And, and they're 80 years old. And they see the foundation. And they burst into tears. And they're wailing and crying. Look, it's a Middle Eastern thing. You know, I mean, I mean we don't do that so much in our culture. Middle Eastern cultures to this day still do that, okay? It's just a difference, a difference in culture. So we have people shouting, yes, God, you're awesome. We have other people going, oh, oh, I'm so sad. It's, it's just like, wow, you couldn't, you couldn't tell who was who. Was who. But why are, the, why are these people so sad? They're comparing themselves, the now, to what was. They're not walking by faith. They're walking by sight. By sight, they're comparing. Temple of Solomon, big. Temple, second temple, bad, small. Temple of Solomon, beautiful, gold, magnificent temple we're building. Eh, Not much to write home about. They're walking by sight. And when you come back to God after a season of the wilderness, you cannot do that. You've got to walk by faith. I am doing what God has told me to do. I'm walking in my position in Christ. I'm fulfilling the disciplines of the spiritual life. I'm doing this, and I'm going to walk in faith, and I'm not going to compare myself to what I was before, to what anybody else is around me. I was on the plane coming back from Houston back in, back in, um, in February, and I just happened to sit next to a guy uh, who I, uh, I did not know him, but we had a common acquaintance. And we were talking about our common acquaintance. And our common acquaintance had been a very strong spiritual leader in the Houston area. And he went through, made a series of bad decisions and uh, just went in the wilderness for about five years. And he came back. He had lost his family. He had lost his job. He had lost everything. He, come, he came back and he began doing ministry again. And he said to the guy sitting next to me, he said, you know, he said, what, what I have now is is different than what I had before. I can't, I can't recapture what I had before. I can't recapture that. And if I, if I go back and lament that, it'll kill me. But what I have now is what God has given me. And, and I'm, and I'm going to seize that and embrace that. And I'm going to love God in the midst of this new thing that God has done. It's walking by, walking by faith, not by sight. And so, let's look at... Two, just two takeaways. Takeaway number one. Ask friends what they do and how it's working. Now, I just said don't compare yourself, and so I don't want to do this in a comparison sense. But if you know a friend who is doing well spiritually, ask them what they do. I have found great benefit in this. I have friends who are doing great spiritually, and they're doing some of the spiritual disciplines. And I say, hey, how does this work for you? Like, like, what do you do when you get away for half a day? How do you spend your time doing that? What, what happens to you when, you when you begin to memorize Scripture? How do you meditate on that? I want, I want to know what other people are doing because I can learn 
from their victories. I would encourage you to do that. Be curious about what, about what other people are doing. And if somebody asks you, don't, don't get all humble and say, well, what I'm doing is so small. And No, tell them what you're doing and tell them what works. And then a second takeaway is this. Remember the 30-day rule. The 30-day rule is for somebody to become a habit, you've got to at least give it 30 days. So if you're going to plan on journaling, do it for 30 days. If you're going to plan on memorizing some scripture, do it for 30 days. If you're going to commit to corporate worship, do it for 30 days, at least, to, to, to get going. But, but you want to get into that habit so that it becomes a long-term thing. You know, I've, I, we've, I've had people tell me, I, we, they, they came to Grace on a Sunday morning and said, oh, I didn't really want to be here. I had a bad week, bad weekend. I just thought I'd just, just not come. And on the way out, they say, I am so glad I came. Because worship, worship was awesome. You know, the, the worship team was amazing. And, you know, th these things are disciplines. You know, you don't, you don't do this because God will love you more. You don't do this because God will say, okay, now you're doing, doing something for me, I'll do something for you. You don't do, that, don't that, do it for that way. You do it because God is God. Amen. And what you want to do is love Him heart, soul, mind, and strength. Glory.